The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, environmental catastrophe in Brazil, the artist Richard Moss on picturing the scale of the destruction of the Amazonian rainforest. We have an in-depth interview with Richard Moss about his new work made in Brazil and his earlier photographs and video installations on the theme of war, displacement and migration. And in this episode's Work of the Week, the artist Rachel McLean talks about her new work for Jupiter Artland near Edinburgh in the context of Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights. Before we begin, a reminder that the art newspaper has started a book club and you can sign up for our monthly book club newsletter. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page and there you'll find a range of newsletters. Why not also sign up for our daily news bulletins and the Art Market Eye newsletter while you're there. Now, this week, the first survey exhibition of the work of the Irish photographer and video artist Richard Moss opens at the Fondazione Mast in Bologna in Italy. Included in that show, and in Richard's current show at Jack Shaneman Gallery in New York, is a new body of photograph named Triste Tropical, after the book by Claude Levi-Strauss. The photographs use Geographic Information System Technology, or GIS, to process thousands of multispectral images capturing the destruction of the Amazonian rainforest. The Bologna show also features Moss's major video installations, the Enclave capturing war and displaced peoples in the Democratic Republic of the Congo on infrared film originally made for military use, and Incoming, focusing on the refugee crisis in Europe and using military thermal imaging technologies which allow human bodies to be pictured at vast distances through body heat. As well as scenes in refugee camps, Incoming captured footage of a tragic shipwreck in the Aegean which led to the deaths of dozens of people and revealed the inadequacy of the emergency response by agencies such as Frontex, the EU's border agency. I spoke to Richard about these projects and his work's position between documentary and art. Richard, I know you're just back from Brazil. What have you been doing there? I've been down there pre-producing for an immersive video artwork uh, I have been making uh, in collaboration with the composer Ben Frost and the cinematographer Trevor Tweeton. Uh, this is the third ambitious immersive video I've made with these collaborators. So it's our, I suppose, in a way, you could think of it as the third part in a in a trilogy of work that's spanned a decade now. Uh, I'm also on my own going solo. I'm making uh, multispectral uh, maps of sites of environmental crimes. So, so tell us about, because those photographs have begun to appear, there's a show at Jack Shaneman, and now there's this show just about to open in Bologna, which is actually a sort of survey show, but it has these works in them. Tell us about these climate change theme works. Yeah, so the, the the maps are. Um, I basically became fascinated with the the problem of representing climate change and and the processes uh, that of deforestation that the Amazon is undergoing uh, all around. It's everywhere. The scale of it is enormous, and I found that very hard to articulate to communicate. And that, that's my job as a, as an artist. I need to find a way to do that, and uh, hopefully an adequate way to do that. Uh, and it's bloody hard. Uh, and, and that's something all storytellers, all of us, not just artists, but photographers, writers, journalists, we all struggle to to really tell that in an adequate way. And that's because the processes are bigger than the human figure and uh, kind of exist outside 
the limits of, of, of human language and human perception. And so that fascinated me, uh, sort of catalyzed uh, a whole con- sort of concept for me. But eventually I discovered, well, I suppose just how could you not discover, the scientists who are, who are telling us all this data about the scale and velocity of deforestation in the Amazon and, and what that means and how that's unfolding. This is all data that's been, that's been gleaned through GIS mapping. And that's geographic information systems mapping, and these are these are captured using very powerful multispectral cameras uh, aboard satellites in space that that take uh, lots and lots of photographs across the Amazon and all across the world, um, which are captured across a, a number of bands, narrow bands, spectral bands, uh, many of which are in the invisible light spectrum that we can't see with human eye. And when they analyze that data, they draw out a lot of this reflectance data from the imagery captured they can start to reveal things aspects of deforestation and uh, release of carbon and and methane and and all kinds of other uh, aspects of of the story and so I got fascinated by that naturally and of course I couldn't afford you know to hire myself a satellite although other artists have have, have done well in that regard (laughs) Um, I did discover that interestingly that the Multispectral camera technologies are also being harnessed and employed to more profitably exploit the rainforest in in the agribusiness and and mining industries. So there's an inherent tension within the medium, which I find fascinating as a photographer, because it's at the one hand it's being employed to more you know to exploit the rainforest, and on the other, it offers us a way of understanding the scale of that deforestation and and to allow us to find ways to to, to save it. So that agency within, it's almost at the crossroads or a crux of the entire narrative as a medium. And that, that got me really excited because I realized that this is a really activated medium, um, which can draw out all kinds of indexical traces of of the environmental processes, which can take years and are very difficult to photograph. Obviously, a, a photo of, of the burning rainforest is a very important image. We've all seen pictures like this in recent years. And, and I think there's a certain exhaustion or saturation or sort of fatigue that imagery like that endures and suffers from. And, uh, you know, I think my challenge to myself is to try to resuscitate and, uh, uh, some of these narratives and, and, and image them in a way that's new and make people feel, feel some of these problems in a, an original way. Can you say how you've done that? Because one of the things that really strikes me looking at these images is that they're enticing. And there's this kind of problematic thing, which is, you know, it's such an inherent element of your work, isn't it? Between the seduction of the image and then the knowledge of what one is looking at, perhaps coming a little later as one as one looks, as one reads around the work. Yeah, well, artists, you know, we can't do very much. We're kind of useless. But one thing we can do is make people feel something and, and hopefully in a, feel something um, that they never felt before in an, in, an, in an original and powerful way. And that's not nothing. That's that's pretty serious power. And I think we do that through aesthetics, through, and I'm not just purely only talking about beauty or the picturesque or the, the agreeable. <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, uh, the way we communicate is through aesthetics. And that is something to be embraced, in my opinion, and, and it can amplify what you're trying to communicate and, and strike the viewer in the most direct way, on a visceral level. And so, yes, these these maps are quite peculiar in, insofar as they can be read 
uh, from different distances in very different ways. So right up close, there's a there's a sort of plethora of intimate detail, of narrative detail. You can see human figures uh, depicted as small dots carrying out tasks. And you can see all kinds of details of frangible organic matter in a state of die, die back or, you know, the health, the rude health of the rainforest and and the drainage patterns and the sort of cluster bombing effect of, of, of illegal gold mining and artisanal gold mining and, and the effect that has on the river systems. But then you step back away from those details. And these are very large scale prints with extraordinary level of resolution that have been gathered. I have 17 works in this show in Jack Shaman Gallery in New York. And, and we, we ran the numbers on the computer, which processed them all, which took months and months. And we realized that those 17 images were comprised of 298,000 individual captures <laughs> across 10 narrow bandwidths of spectral data. So there's an immense amount of resolution there. And, and once it's composited, it turns into, when you step back from them, these extraordinary sort of gestural almost painterly, almost like colour field painting, some of them. Um, some of them are quite abstracted. And yeah, I, I really like that the way you can sort of get lost in the image uh, when you step up close, but get lost in them in a different way when you step back from them. But of course, they tell a story of utter cataclysm, right? These are active images of this immense crisis. And when you see them together... How do you feel they represent that? Or, or is it is in a way that problem of representation still inherent in the work to a certain degree? Right. So these are maps uh, of environmental crimes in the act of being carried out. Right. Uh, uh, Map Biomass, which is a Brazilian research organization, um, they did a report last year and they projected that 99% of activities in the Amazon basin are illegal. They're environmental crimes. So you don't need to be too careful about what you're pointing the camera at. Most of the <laughs> timber you see coming down the rivers and going trundling up the roads is somehow is illegal or w- will be laundered or, or will be used uh, to launder other wood. And the same goes for all those people burning. And it's willfully. This is not some accidental fire that got out of control. This is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of people going out with their families with little bottles of gasoline and and setting, you know, very pers- persistently setting uh, over the course of months and years, setting the rainforest on fire. And that, it's become normalised um, to the point where it's almost unstoppable because on a globalised level, on a local level, on a regional level, on a cultural level, and certainly on an economic level, this is these environmental crimes are just they're just accepted, um, and they're not punished because Bolsonaro's government has defunded the Obama, for example, and they slap a few fines on people, but nobody pays them. So there's no prosecution, and so it's just become totally normalised. And and I think that that's a hard thing to describe because a lot of these processes are bloody banal, you know, and quite everyday things, and they're quite hard to see. As I said, they they take years to to unfold and um, the rainforest is wet you know it's quite hard to burn and so it takes about three years to turn primary rainforest into pasture land and, and each year is a different I suppose a different phase in that process and I've passed I've been working two years down there and I've seen the same sites for two summers in a row and I'm about to go back and see the third because the dry season's about to begin and so you, you sort of create an archive of, of this process um, over time these are all very, very difficult things to show otherwise with a normal camera. It's a tough story to, to really convey. You know, you talked about that almost sublime quality that these, these images have. And I wonder about that sort of idea of catastrophe and to what extent 
the problem of representing in that catastrophe remains. You, these are documents, as you say, of live catastrophe, <laughs> and 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 yet at the same time they can appear sublime. And in a way, is 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 that the point of the work? That is that sort of, to a certain extent, the apathy of the global community and the impotence of most agencies, not just in Brazil, but beyond Brazil too, almost sort of built into the work. Okay, in the mid-80s, in the United States at least, there was a consensus from the left and the right, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, both of which were fairly centre actually at that point. They came together, there was a hole in the ozone layer, something needed to be done, they both agreed on it, and something was done. And the hole in the ozone layer was more or less patched up, and by God, thank God for that. And then... After that, that was when the environmental movement was sort of born, at least in this country. And after that, then uh, the oil and gas billionaires realised, oh shit, this is going to take us down. And so they paid huge amounts of money to think tanks, to, uh, to lobbyists, to intellectuals, to academics, to create a movement of climate denialism, which, of course, infected the Republican Party. And so is half the country here is in denial about climate change. And that's... That's a question of storytelling. And those are stories that have been told that have changed the world and that have lost for us decades of time that we should have been using to to turn this around. And so we have to fight that with storytelling. And so artists have this role. Uh, we, we have the potential to tell stories just like writers, like yourself, and journalists and f- photographers and all of us who, who can tell a story, I think now is the time to begin to do that. And, and these processes are, are not entirely well understood by many people. And if, you know, in my little way, I could try to show you what I've seen, which is the power of documentary photography, after all, is to say, I've seen this and I want you to see it. That's testimonial. And that's, that's what documentary photography does at its best. And when it's done very well, it can change the world. And I'm folding that in with contemporary art, which has a different set of powers. It can reveal and make visible what exists perhaps beyond the limits of perception and beyond the limits of our language. And to, to, if we could fold those together somehow, which is kind of what I'm struggling to do throughout my practice, perhaps we can, we can really hit the viewer in different ways forcefully to try to impact people, people's imaginations. And, and I suppose when my work is most effective, I hope, it, it has a triple strike. And that's uh, primarily an aesthetic one. It will disarm you aesthetically with aesthetic power. Not necessarily necessarily beautiful, but it can be a, a certain type of beauty, a kind of nauseating beauty or a, a searing beauty or a, a kind of distorted beauty. Or it can be a saturated beauty. And the second strike would be the metaphoric, is to take something that on a metaphoric level sort of engages with the, with the subject matter, with the narratives, in a meaningful way that allows the viewer to think through a little bit more uh, with a little bit more depth, sort of to, as a, almost like a prism that unpacks the subject. And I believe in this case, in this project, the multispectral camera, which, as I said, is situated at the crossroads of, of, as a medium, is operating there in a metaphoric way. And the third strike is the indexical. And that's showing people a, f- a physical trace of something that they can't normally see. And I think some of these maps have that potential that you can see the the living and the, the pain to the living foliage and caused by some of these fires. You can see there's one, one of a subterranean fire in the Pantanal. And a lot of the Pantanal, 25% of the entire Pantanal burnt last summer in about two or three months. 25% we lost six and a half, seven thousand 7,000 square miles of the Pantanal. 
it can't happen again, but it might do. And a lot of those fires were burning, smouldering underground where you can't see them. Even the firefighters couldn't see them. And that's because the it's a tropical wetlands and the, the desiccated root system dries out and the fire can get into that root system and burn and smoulder away underground. And, and my drone was able to, when I dialed it, dialed it in correctly, was able to see the, the front lines of those subterranean fires and to show the scale of it. And, and that, that's working indexically in that case. So I'm not trying to, in this case, upset the viewer with a very compelling colour palette. In fact, a lot of these colour palettes are, are you know, uh, a bit unorthodox, shall we say, and uh, unusual. And, uh, but they're based on GIS mapping. They're based on a scientific approach. And, and that, that colour palette can actually yield information to careful readers of the work uh, about the processes that are unfolding. And yes, hopefully <laughs> hopefully you feel struck aesthetically by them as, as works of art. You do, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about the experience of being in Brazil. We know that Brazil is a, is a huge COVID hotspot. We know that the the crisis has been terribly mismanaged there. How have you gone about doing your work there in this period? And has it affected you to see that the scale of the disaster over there? Yeah, Brazil, I'm afraid the virus is really raging there still. And uh, on a terrible, terrible level, the health system's collapsing or has collapsed in the city of Manaus, particularly where the P1 variant has, uh, has been born, uh, it's thought. And there's also culturally a kind of certain machismo, you know, a lot of people don't wear masks, particularly in the provincial towns and the smaller towns. And uh, there's a lot of virus denialism and uh, particularly amongst the president and his clique. And of course, they screwed up the whole vaccine thing. They said no to, I think, 90 million Pfizer vaccines. I can't remember the number. Um, And now they're trying to turn that around by letting the Chinese in uh, with their 5G network. It's all a big old mess, as they say, and very frustrating logistically to work, particularly when I'm working with my filmmaking team, my, my film crew. You know, to fly a team of videographers and composers, etc., around the world during this this pandemic is was just difficult. You constantly testing, doing carrying PCR tests everywhere we go. Yeah, uh, luckily none of us have caught the virus. Extraordinary, but let's face it, we're working very remotely, and we work in a small bubble with the driver and the translator. And we don't hang out when we eat. We always eat on the street. We never go indoors. The, the big <laughs> the big killer for our project would be the the breakfast buffet in in the nasty little hotels where we stay because they always leave the windows shut and have the aircon on and. Um, that's the most deadly place we usually try to avoid. But um, yeah, there's constantly uh, hand sanitizer in the car and we're, our hands are all red from it. Um, and uh, I think I think we're lucky to be working very remotely in very deep parts of the Amazon. And uh, the problem is if you do get sick out there, it's very hard to find the proper care. But we haven't hit that problem yet, luckily, by the grace of God, touch wood. But yeah, no, I suppose just to give you a sense of it, like I was just going up the Rio Jingu there in a boat beautiful beautiful river wow it's a tributary of the amazon and yeah there there are huge hospital boats sitting in a little town called uh, senador porfilio a little illegal logging sawmill town full of criminality but also full of covid and those boats are full to the brim and you can see the nurses coming out with the masks crossing themselves and uh, little uh, ambulance boats going up the rivers so the communities are very badly hit and, and and worst hit of all of course are the indigenous communities who are genetically predisposed to respiratory diseases and whom almost these diseases like covid for example smallpox in times past were tools of colonialism and they were used deliberately to carry out the ethnocide you know claude levi strauss writes about how the 
the clothes taken from smallpox victims in hospitals were left on the railings of the of the local church for the indigenous people to pick up to take home to their families to kill them off you know this is hundreds of years ago but president bolsonaro thinks of covid in a very similar way i'm afraid to say and so um, those communities are actually the ones who are recently contacted and who are living remotely in their aldea villages a lot of them are are, are retreating further into the rainforest for their own protection they've set up roadblocks uh, shut down roads leading into their communities and the the illegal gold mining industries uh, especially bring lots of diseases not just covid but also malaria and sexually transmitted disease that brings a lot of prostitution and and all kinds of society breaking um, very invasive elements of western civilization so as a result i've been very careful not to infiltrate those groups until they're fully vaccinated and so i as a result i've actually been focusing entirely on environmental criminals which is just a rather overlooked and unfashionable subject to examine carefully which i'm glad it's sort of given the, on the entire project uh, uh, an urgent emphasis We'll be back with more from Richard Moss in a moment, but first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. Eli Broad, the billionaire art collector, businessman and philanthropist who played a major role in transforming the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, has died aged 87. Among much else, Broad was the founding chairman of the Museum of Contemporary Art, or MOCA, and was a linchpin in raising funds for the Frank Gehry-designed Walt Disney Concert Hall in downtown Los Angeles. He also made major donations to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and perhaps most famously, he and his wife Edith founded the Broad, their namesake museum, in 2015. It houses more than 2,000 works from the couple's collection. Edith survives him along with their two sons. Artists in different parts of the world protesting against oppressive governments have gone on hunger strike in recent days. Last weekend, Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara, the Cuban artist and leader of the San Isidro movement, was forcibly taken by security forces from his home to a hospital in Havana, ending an eight-day hunger strike in protest at the government's clampdown on free speech and artists' rights. Meanwhile, in Russia, Yulia Svetkova, a 27-year-old LGBTQ activist artist who faces up to six years in prison on criminal charges for distributing pornography over the internet declared a hunger strike on the 1st of May. Her images were intended to promote body positivity and are widely seen as innocuous outside her homeland. And finally, archaeologists have discovered the remains of a Bronze Age village beneath Lake Lucerne in Switzerland. The settlement was revealed when a trench was being cut for a new water pipeline beneath the lake. The excavation unearthed pottery and wooden poles that were carbon dated to around 1000 BCE in the Bronze Age, when the lake level was 5 metres lower than today. After further dives, the archaeologists concluded that the wooden poles were the remains of pile dwellings, houses that stood on stilts beside lakes or on riverbanks, indicating that the Lucerne area was settled around 2000 years earlier earlier than previously thought. Settlements of this kind were common from 5000 to 500 BCE. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This May, Christie's is shifting its approach in presenting the art of the 20th and 21st centuries, ushering in a new era for the art world. The exciting new 21st century evening sale on the 11th of May brings the art of the past 40 years to the forefront, emphasising its importance in today's rapidly changing art market. Featuring artists such as Jean-Michel Basquiat, Urs Fischer, Louise Bourgeois and Kerry James Marshall, the sale also creates a new platform for more recent masterworks and makes room to amplify voices that have been historically overlooked and undervalued. Viewing by appointment only at Christie's Rockefeller Centre Galleries ends on the 11th of May. In the meantime, explore the works and related features on christies.com slash 20-21. Welcome back. A reminder that you can hear all the episodes of our sister podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth conversations with artists including Rashid Johnson, Rachel Whiteread, Doris Salcedo and Judy Meritu on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Now, back to Richard Moss. I wanted to ask you, you talked about the sort of indexical element, this idea of presenting things which haven't been seen, and that relates very strongly to Incoming, these, this film which particularly focused on the refugee crisis. And I know when we spoke several years ago, some of the footage that you made in making Incoming was actually being used by forensic architecture in an investigation into a sunken boat which was crossing between Turkey and Lesbos and in fact 24 people died on that boat and you were you that you were there with your camera at the time witnessing it can you tell me about the incoming but also about that experience and how your work then actually did cross into a form of reportage and it actually used in an investigation and and in a way how that reflected the kind of multiple aims of the work yeah um so that was a the worst a human trafficking disaster in the Aegean Sea, um, in living memory anyway, on record. I believe it was more like 100 people died, but we, we, we won't know because at least 300 souls were on the boat, a fishing trawler heavily packed, that the uh, top deck collapsed uh, in heavy weather and uh, all the people packed on the top deck fell into the lower deck and people were killed at that point. And then an ensuing panic, the entire ship, the hull of the ship, came apart and the ship capsized and sank and all those souls were in the heavy waves a lot of these people couldn't swim and we were imaging this with a camera designed exactly for this kind of thing from from a distance of about i'm not sure five or seven kilometers uh, but we could actually see their 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 the warmth from their bodies pinpointed in the sea um, from that distance and the, we filmed the entire disaster unfolding we obviously were powerless to do anything because it, it happened in international waters which complicated the rescue efforts and to give you the whole story we went to the little port of Molivos in northern um, Lesbos where the after we'd filmed the the wreck which took took about three hours to to unfold sadly and the, the rescue effort was so botched that it took some time for those p- victims to be brought into a harbour and they, they were mainly brought into Monibos where we went after this when the, the night fell and we filmed these hypothermic bodies coming off a fishing trawler and they were since we're using a thermal camera in this case they were their skin was pallid white because they were so cold and the, the hands of the rescue workers were, were black with warmth and they were rubbing desperately rubbing attempting to rub the life-giving warmth from their palms into the into the bodies the swaddled bodies of these hypothermic victims who were unconscious some of whom died in front of us and it was it was absolutely awful to behold like it was a scene from hell literally yet the camera allowed us to 
very powerfully convey this in a number of ways. For a start, it allowed us to step back and to get out of the way uh, of the rescue efforts so we didn't get in the middle of things and disturb the rescue efforts. But also, we were able to see those traces of that life-giving warmth, as I just said. The handprints themselves were left on the body, on the on the towels wrapped around the bodies, and, and uh, they remained there after the hand had been lifted away for some seconds. And so this was an indexical trace that once I saw it, I realized, wow, this is really telling this story in a way that I've never seen. And, uh, and, and it's telling it in a crucial way because, of course, this, these people are dying of a lack of body heat and we're using a camera that's, that can actually indexically show body heat. So there was a real, like, real essential um, fit uh, between the medium and the subject matter. We interviewed a few people. Ben Frost went off and interviewed several people and we filmed that. Some of them, we, we, we filmed some of them talking and he met one woman who was an artist, a Syrian artist, and she had almost died in that wreck and she was a bit listless, you know, talking about her sisters. It was a very extraordinary yet disembodied interview because she was deeply traumatised, but she had a strap to her arm, uh, a little GoPro-style camera, in a, in, a, in a waterproof bag to document her, her voyage. And she didn't expect to drown or almost drown or, or suffer the shipwreck, but she did. And the whole thing was recorded. You know, she was underwater for most of it, but luckily we got these very powerful images of, of her and people around her trying to survive, some of which was underwater footage, some of which was shrieking the helicopter from Frontex coming down, buzzing them, creating all kinds of panic and very traumatic imagery from the primary source from the victim of you know this very extraordinary important material and she we kept in touch with her and she knew about i think her husband was in that field i, I i'm not sure but she was going to berlin to meet with her husband also a syrian refugee and he's a filmmaker and he submitted they submitted together the material to forensic architecture uh, which they knew about and uh, and then forensic architecture i think they must have heard that I had been on scene because their researchers, you know, have to do a lot of research to find out who else out there may have this important footage of these events so they can they can map it in time and space using photogrammetry and all kinds of clever technologies um, to create a, a, a forensic case study that sometimes is used in court and in international criminal court and can create meaningful forms of justice and transparency. It's extraordinary what they do. And so I think they must have heard at that time I was opening the show in the Barbican incoming 2017 and um, did a series of interviews and I must have mentioned this and uh, someone got in touch with me um, from their team and and said, would you mind sharing that? And I said, of course, because we actually only used very select uh, shots. We we used very carefully because it was so traumatic. And, and of course, a lot of the the most disturbing material we we didn't show it visually but we we allowed the audience to hear it so the screen goes entirely black at that point it's the most harrowing part of the film in my opinion you can hear a young child being lifted by her by her heels and smacked on the back and she's unable to cough and her father is is crying for her to survive she did survive but she died the next day of something called second drowning so he was it's a very tragic story but that material we still had it i said immediately wrote some straight back to the researcher from Friends of Architecture, by all means, we have about seven or eight hours of this stuff. Here it is. Because our our camera never stopped working, but hers did. And together they create a very interesting, how should we say, a dialectic or macro and micro double evidence. Um, so they created this piece. There are also materials from others. 
submitted by other videographers. But but primarily the sort of spine of the piece, uh, which you can view on Forensic Architecture website. I believe they almost tried to prosecute Frontex and uh, European immigration policy somehow. I, I don't know how they plan to, but I, I believe they decided not to, as it would simply re-traumatize the victims um, and probably not lead to meaningful justice in this particular case. But they, case by case, they do consider the most effective use of the material. But for me, that was really extraordinary. And I, by the way, I didn't have any um, part in how the material was used. I just gave it over to them as ProRes, original ProRes files. And I said, do whatever you want with it. I really don't mind. You don't even need to give me credit. And they did interview us over Skype, me and Trevor. Trevor Tweeton is a cameraman. Cinematographer, right? yeah. And our accounts are in there and along with everyone else's. And um, in terms of what what documentary photography can do, I thought it was a great case study. I wanted to ask you about that because it, it, obviously there are numerous instances of photographers very directly confronting the ethical dilemmas of their jobs. It's a common theme among people that make reportage. You're an artist, of course, but you're dealing with similar territory. And so are you wrestling with similar ethical concerns on a daily basis as you go about just filming this this stuff? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. How can you not? There's a lot of things we don't film. There's, especially with incoming, there was a, all kinds of questions about consent that we constantly uh, navigated for ourselves. And the, the interesting thing about that camera is it anonymizes the individual as well as as well as being very invasive because it can zoom in in, in a way. But but you don't really see the individual. You see a biological trace of them. So it, it allows, it sort of frees the, the image away from the identification of that individual and, and, and all of the baggage and questions that come up along with that. And, you know, when we use that camera in, a, in public spaces, you know, I think that's... Uh, it's newsworthy events. We're, we're, we're documenting history as it's, as it's unfolding in many instances. But when we bring it into a private space, like in internal domestic space of a refugee camp, we have to get, you know, consent from everyone. And so we worked with the, with the camp organizers and we, we made everyone aware of when we were filming and, and we, we had a sample image of the way they look depicted by the camera. And this it's you know, this conversation is really the most powerful thing that, at least to me, is is a foundation to making these these immersive video artworks that are very that take years to make and they're collaborative results of the forces with the 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 powers of Ben Frost, Trevor Tweeton, and, and myself in different ways and and our and our other collaborators on on along the way. Uh, the conversation is really generative and uh, and and as we grow and as as the world changes culturally, you know, we are navigating a lot of the ethics together to make imagery that we feel treats the subject fairly, but also, and most importantly, and this is really what my greatest ambition in my work is, is, is to make the viewer get a sense of their own complicity in these problems and not to, not to let them off the hook. And I'm talking about me too, uh, as a European citizen, the, the failures uh, I am partly responsible for uh, towards the refugees who've died or, or, Who've been who, who whose human rights have been violated? I feel that, but I want I want others, other European citizens, to feel that, so they can feel their agency as citizens. That's perhaps more important than pointing fingers. And it's interesting with the Amazon stuff, you know, the the cowboys, the vaqueros, and the garimperos, these illegal gold wildcat gold miners. These are these are very hardworking, proud young men, often who have nothing else. You know, they're very proud of what they've built in their life, but they're coming from 
great place of great poverty. They have no other opportunities. You know, to 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 pin the blame on them for for these environmental crimes is is, is a little bit misguided. I sometimes think is like maybe they're about as guilty as the cows themselves, who are who are being bred for the beef burgers that we eat. So. Yes, uh, that's the challenge we have in making in making this video, which is halfway being to being finished, and to find a way to to indict the viewer and uh, and to make them feel that, rather than to just point a finger at, at at ourselves, but to to really imbue that within the work somehow, um, and, and and almost like a Trojan horse within the work. Yeah, I and mean, I was really acutely aware of that when I saw one of the works from Infra, the series of photographs you made relating to that work the enclave uh, which is where you're using that military infrared film and i walked into an art fair and i said i think i guess it would have been on jack shaman's booth or whatever and there is an image from the congo of a you know a, a, a rebel soldier and you know there is that immediately as as a viewer there's, there's the ethical dilemma of looking at it on the wall of a booth of a gallery who is going to sell it to a collector and all that kind of thing. And and are you saying that in a way that's where the work continues to perform its role? It's not just about making the work and displaying it. It's also about the sites in which it's displayed. The portraits of the rebels in Congo are an indictment of those rebels. These are rebels with blood on their hands who've done horrific human rights violations to sometimes massacres and sexual violence and we are not to sympathize with these individuals these are these are brutal people obviously their situation comes out of colonialism and continues that colonialism through kind of globalized interest in the rare earth minerals in eastern congo which benefits from an ongoing unstable situation an ongoing conflict cycle of vicious little wars and i've tried my best over 5 years to try to document as many aspects and facets of that including examining the landscape across that very rich land which is also one of the world's poorest landscapes and economically for the people themselves the people are always the victim the civilians and the art fair is a place where the work gets sold it's true um, but you know this helps an artist sustain the practice to continue a very ambitious project to make that immersive video that then goes on to in this, in this case that piece was titled the enclave which is shown in many many museums and for free and touched many, many audiences. And the same with incoming. One of the conditions, at least I've pushed in most of the shows I've been successful in pushing for is that incoming is always shown for free. And we have school groups, we have refugees themselves come in, and we have all kinds of people who'd never, from all sides of the spectrum, it doesn't sustain itself. Uh, Museums, especially in the United States, are, you know, they're not publicly funded. And there are some grants out there for artists. But, and I know the art market particularly gets a bad rap, but a lot of the collectors who I know and who support my work are very serious about about supporting powerful work that speaks truth in, in difficult ways that is about some serious topics that are close to their heart. Yeah, we tend to want to avoid the less serious collectors who, who are just in it to flip the work. We're all trying to figure out who they are. Luckily, I'm not involved in sales whatsoever and I try not to get involved at all. As they say, would, would you show the cattle the slaughterhouse? Uh, referring to art fairs. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, no, I, I have a show, Jack Shame, and the works are for sale. But it's funny, it's more important, this is very fresh work that even I haven't figured out how to really talk about publicly yet because it's just fresh off the off the printer. I, I, I know I'm trying to kind of get into a groove with it and, and showing it publicly in this way for the first time. You know, you're not going to get a museum show right off the bat like that. First, you have to show it somewhere. 
And it's a way for curators to come in off the street. Again, don't forget, Chelsea galleries are for free. You don't have to buy a ticket. Anyone can come off the street and look at the work if they want to, if they care. But then those curators go back and they discuss the work and perhaps eventually you might get a museum show of the work maybe in a year or two or three. And then the work is elevated to to a much broader audience. And But all the while there are things like our conversation now where we can get stuck in on some of these ideas and and spread and disseminate some of the narratives and discuss them. And it's all part of the storytelling process that an artist has to engage in. Well, Richard, thank you for telling this story today. Thank you very much, Ben. Richard Moss's exhibition Displaced is at the Fondazione Mast in Bologna until the 19th of September. His exhibition Triste Tropical is at Jack Shaman in New York for one more week. It closes on the 15th of May. The investigation we discussed by Forensic Architecture, Shipwreck at the Threshold of Europe, can be seen at forensic-architecture.org. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The artist Rachel McLean has this week unveiled her work Mimi at Jupiter Artland, the sculpture garden just outside Edinburgh. It consists of an abandoned high street toy shop set in Woodland and explores the idea of commercial spaces as sites of desire alongside fairy tale interpretations of forests and the dwellings within them as magical and dangerous. When visitors enter the derelict toy shop, they encounter the topsy-turvy realm of Rachel's invented cartoon princess, Mimi. Perhaps unsurprisingly for an artist invested in fantasy and darkness, Rachel chose to talk about her new work in the context of perhaps the greatest of all fantasy paintings, Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights in the Prado Museum in Madrid. Rachel, you've chosen to talk about Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. Why? I've always loved this painting. I think like I first saw it when I was a kid and there's just so much in it. I think it's just the level of detail that you never get bored that's right. I mean, I, I was I was just sort of looking over it again, knowing that you were going to talk about it. And it's one of those things that every time it's so surprising just how much detail there is in it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's just bizarre and, um, yeah, surprising. It's taken me, like, years to spot some things, like the wee guy who's got musical notations on his bum. And is it right that there's a, there's actually some people on YouTube that have tried to work out, actually play that score? Yeah, quite a few people. Uh, it's not much of a tune, but yeah, I'm impressed that they've attempted it. Is, is it too neat to say that in your work, there's a similar concern with the kind of both desire to sort of seduce and repel that you see in Bosch? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And I think I use binary quite a lot visually in my work or but it's usually a slightly complicated binary so I think that idea of like heaven and hell is interesting I can sort of tell that he maybe had more fun painting the hell than he did painting the heaven there's more kind of darkness and imagination in it it's really interesting, isn't it, that, that in theory this is a, you know, well, lots of people have posited the idea. We don't know wholly why Bosch did it, but there's this idea that it's an extremely moral painting and it's it's mm-hmm. effectively talking about the depravity of the human condition to a certain degree and focusing on sin. And yet Bosch is taking clear delight in describing it and inventing this extraordinary landscape for it to happen in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's maybe what's interesting about it as a work, that it doesn't morally seem very clear-cut it's kind of complicated and not easy to unpack I suppose 
And in terms of the way that you've approached the subjects which you deal with, because of course there is a, you know, a, there are social concerns at the heart of your work. And indeed there are social concerns at the heart of the work that you've unveiled at Jupiter Art and mm. now. Is it a sort of a dilemma how lightly you wear that moral dimension to the work? How lightly you posit ideas based on that kind of moral landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm interested in morality as like a discussion rather than a sense of me having decided what is morally right or what is morally morally wrong um, in advance of making the work. I think it can be a bit off-putting if you feel like somebody's kind of pushing their morals on you. So I, I always want that to be a discussion and to almost like touch up against issues where the morals are a little more unclear. And does it help that you have devices which can really distort those kind of ideas like colour? And I'm really conscious of that looking at Bosch, that colour is such a kind of a potent tool in, in, the, in the Garden of Earthly Delights. Yeah, I think so. I think it's colour and seduction. And I like in my work this creating a world that you can get quite sucked into and it's quite dense and detailed and there's something attractive in that, but... The closer you look, there's things that are kind of dark or odd that push back on that a wee bit. And I think, yeah, Gardens of Earthly Delights does it where it's it's this world that's seductive and it kind of pulls you in. But the more you're pulled in, the more kind of weird little unexplainable bits that you find. Obviously, in your work, there are elements which, you know, you can follow as a narrative, but it, it seems to me essential, too, that there are just flights of imagination. And that's it seems to me, is crucial again in Bosch here. There's that bird-headed figure sitting on a on what looks like a lavatory stool, oh, yeah. which is kind of eating <laughs> yeah. naked figures and then shitting them out. Yeah, and and yeah, yeah. sense in which, yes, you, you are telling stories, but you have a kind of whole language available to you to, to tell those stories with, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's kind of like a fine line in art between something being like too mysterious and not being mysterious enough that you've got to kind of find that balance where it's not so so mysterious that you can't even be bothered finding out. And yet it's not like so uncomplex that it's just kind of flat. Um, So I always want to find that, that balance. You kind of know where you are to an extent, but there's these wee things that throw you and yeah some of the imagery in garden of earthly delights is just so fun and odd and absurd is it too strong an idea to say that you look at bosch and you take from bosch elements that you bring directly into your own work i definitely have done before i think there's something about the composition of it i really like and i don't know if this is a kind of boring technical thing but i've been working quite a lot in kind of 3D to make landscapes recently. And the problem with a lot of software is it forces things into this kind of one-point perspective. Whereas with Bosch, it's this kind of flattened out perspective that almost at a distance feels like it reads like a pattern. Um, So I've been, I've used this work quite a lot as reference for creating landscapes that don't feel like they're forced in. To perspective they've got that kind of level of flatness and stylization to them that's fascinating and also i suppose you know you a lot of what you've done you've had to use like green screens right so you had to you've had yeah. to invent language some filmmakers might be working within built environments but you have had to invent a lot of your landscapes right yeah yeah so i am um, i'm quite accustomed to sort of making worlds and 
Yeah, I've been trying quite a bit. I think maybe this is what artists do a lot with software, but almost like working against what softwares are built to do and partly by making things in 3D and then forcing them into what feels more like a kind of painterly perspective is doing something that the software is not built for, um, which I quite like. And of course, one of the key factors in in Bosch is the grotesque. And it's something that you've, in Mm. a sense, drawn from across the artistic canon uh, from as well. Because, I mean, I know Paul McCarthy is just as important Mm. to you as Bosch is in some ways. um, Can you say something about grotesque? Because obviously with with Bosch, you have a kind of blueprint for artistic grotesquery. But Mm. but tell me about about your use of the grotesque and and how it can be used as a device, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the grotesque and I like ugliness. And I think I find beauty quite a problematic idea. I think especially as a woman, beauty is always this thing almost by definition that's out of your grasp and you have to strive for it, but it's always kind of denied to you. Whereas grotesqueness and ugliness is quite easily achievable. And I think there's something kind of interesting in that so often I dress up as characters that are not intending to be beautiful and it almost means you kind of you escape that feeling of always needing to be striving for that thing that you can never achieve and instead you achieve something else which is the opposite and I think that's what I quite like about grotesqueness is it sort of it runs counter to that desire to achieve beauty and I guess by extension runs counter to all the things that you do and buy in order to try and achieve beauty because it's kind of going completely in the other direction. And of course, talking about buying, Bosch has been massively reproduced. Did you first come across his work through reproduction or was your entry into Bosch's world through through a print or some other version of his work? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. I think loads of prints of his work. Um, I also have a pair of leggings with the painting on them. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see it in real life until, I guess, reasonably recently, and I was surprised by how small it was. I think because if you see things in reproduction, it really blows up all of the details. And I don't know if it's a painting that maybe to a certain extent works better in reproduction than it does in real life. Let's talk about Mimi, this this new work that you've done. Mm. So say more about it, because I mean, it relates directly to, in a way, a legacy of Bosch in terms of the grotesque, in terms of fairy tales. But tell me more. Yeah, so um, Mimi's a new permanent sculpture that I've made for Jupiter Artlands just outside Edinburgh. And it's the first time I've done a few things. So first time I've worked entirely in animation and also uh, first time I've worked on this scale, kind of architectural scale. So the piece is, to describe how you encounter it, you arrive at a forest and you walk in and see these heart paving stones on the ground and you start to follow them until a building, a kind of candy-coloured building, emerges that says Mimi Store on the top. So it's almost a Hansel and Gretel-style candy-coloured shop in a forest Um, And then you go inside and there's the film playing with this main character, Mimi, as well as dolls. So there's this feeling of like a kind of stock in the shop, which is dolls, but you can't buy them. And the work is all about this sort of topsy-turvy idea, the world's turned upside down. So the interior is upside down, so you're standing on the ceiling and the doll itself um, has a kind of inverted dress. So she has two heads and inverts from one side which is kind of like your classic 
doll to another side, which is more like a sort of fairy tale witch or like a, a fairy tale kind of granny. And, and there's a sort of bit of social commentary as part of it too, right? So that, so there's an element which relates to the sort of decline of um, towns in the UK and particularly the high street as centres of commerce, etc. Yeah, I, I got... Um, initially, when I was invited to do the commission, I was connected to uh, Jupiter Artland work with youth groups and um, they were asked to, I guess, almost like pitch to me various ideas that they had for what they would want to make a work about are interesting things that are important to them. And what most of them came back with was this idea of growing up in our town or a city where loads of the shops are boarded up. And I thought to me that was interesting because, you know, I grew up in the 90s and that was a pretty different experience that it was this kind of boom era for consumer capitalism and it was the feeling of things being made and opening, not the thing, feeling of things being closed and closing. So um, I thought that was an interesting thing to comment on as kind of an experience of now is that feeling of, yeah, what, what that must be like to experience growing up in a time where you feel like you've almost missed it and things are closed before you've even had the chance to experience them. What links you and Bosch, I guess, in that sense, is that even though Bosch is creating this extraordinary fantastical landscape and are you one has this sense that the image of fantasy has a direct correlation with the people who are interpreting its lives so so the people that come into jupiter artland Mm. to see your work it will be a commentary on their surroundings and on the world that they've come from And, and i wonder about fantasy as a sort of means of telling stories and and how that works in in terms of your practice yeah I think for me I've always liked that idea that you you kind of displace something from reality and talk about it in fantasy and you can often talk about things strangely more clearly when they're displaced into a fantastical world because you're not tied to recreating kind of all the banalities of reality and I think I, I always want to set up a fantasy world that feels quite familiar. And a lot of the work re- references, I guess, fantasies that are sold to little girls. So I kind of commoditized fantasy. And there's something quite familiar and comforting in that, but also something that I guess elicits desire. Like I still look at toys and that kind of imagery and feel a sense of desire. It's almost just like an aesthetic that's that's built into and then make you question that. So throw some darkness into it or look at what is beneath the surface of that desire. So I think that, yeah, the fantasy is something that I want to be, to be familiar enough that people can feel that initial comfort and then be led into something that's much more dark and unsettling. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for telling us about it. Great, thank you. Rachel McLean's Mimi is a permanent work at Jupiter Artland and it's accompanied by an exhibition of four video works by Rachel which continues until the 18th of July. 
that's it for this week. Please subscribe to The Art Newspaper. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. Do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with and give us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentle and Daniela Hathaway and to our guests Richard Moss and Rachel McLean. Thanks to you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.